0: You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM.
1: The way I look at that is that people really are curious, you know, they're curious, they just have to figure out how to wade through all the volumes of information they get.
0: Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Okay, pop quiz. What were the last five articles you read from a news source? And how many of them had to do with science? Climate change, the chase for a COVID vaccine, migratory paths of the monarch butterfly? If you're like me, some reasonable proportion of your reading is science journalism. I'll even wager a guess, if not a bet, that we might read more of those stories these days because at least things like butterflies are happier reading than some of the other options. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. And today, I wanted to explore how it shows up in science writing, that wonderful craft that begins to answer our curiosity about the world around us. We're more or less curious by nature, and nature or other science topics actually make for pretty interesting reading. And it turns out science curiosity, being curious about science, might actually be good for us science curiosity has some correlation with being less likely to fall victim to our own information echo chamber. So much so, according to Dan Cahan and his colleagues at the Cultural Cognition Project at Yale Law School, their research suggests that science curiosity might be, and I quote, essential to good civic character. Think about that the next time you cuddle up with a story about comets or bioluminescence. So, No pressure on the people who actually write about this science stuff. But who are they? What gets them going? How does curiosity fit into their work and lives? That's our topic for today. I first came to know Kim O'Connell's writing through Echoes of Little Saigon, Vietnamese Immigration and the Changing Face of Arlington, an exploration of Clarendon as I first knew it in the 1980s, a neighborhood of Vietnamese restaurants and other small businesses, But local oral history is just the beginning for Kim, who writes, as she puts it, at the intersection of people and place. Kim's essays about selective mutism, a lesser-known social anxiety disorder, have appeared in The Washington Post, Huffington Post Personal, and PsychologyToday.com, among others. The science publication Undark published her article about light pollution and astrotourism, which grew in part out of an artist residency at Acadia National Park. The piece was republished in Atlas Obscura and Mother Jones as part of the Climate Desk publication collaboration. She also wrote the May-June cover story on the best hiking in Virginia for Arlington Magazine, focusing on ways to cope with being quarantined and social distancing during the coronavirus crisis. Kim's work, has not gone unrecognized, and she received the Excellence in Teaching Award 2020 at Johns Hopkins University, where she teaches in the Master's in Science Writing program. Who better to talk about curiosity and science writing? So welcome, Kim. Thank you, Lynn. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. So, you know, as I said when I reached out to you about this, it feels like The science writer's role in advancing conversations about science or communicating an independent assessment of research discoveries feels really important right now. Do you feel that way?
1: Oh, I absolutely do. And I'm speaking as a longtime journalist, and I was a journalist before I considered myself a science journalist. Journalists, I think, are always important and uh, because we are the ones trying to make sense of what's happening around us. As you probably know, you know there's a proliferation of information sources now in the internet age that we're in. There's more, quote unquote, information out there than there ever has been. So in a way, it's a wonderful period to be a journalist in, but it's a lot to wade through and trying to figure out what's credible and not credible in terms of uh, the articles that we're reading and the sources that we're quoting from, it's it's difficult, but it's more important than ever. And especially with regard to science, like you said in your introduction, because we're sort of, you know, whether we think we care about science or not, whether we're science buffs or not, science is happening. Like, so (laughs) I feel like we absolutely need science journalism right now, good science journalism to help us wade through all that.
0: Yeah. So define, define science journalism. Is it the same or different than science writing?
1: Well, I I would say they're pretty much synonymous. However, journalism, I would consider a a subset of science writing. Mm -hmm. The program that I teach in the Johns Hopkins master's in science writing program has a pretty broad view of what science writing is. And I am attracted to that because I write in different forms. I write journalism, I write essays, you know, I've even written fiction and poetry. And so science writing can encompass all those things. And I've taught different works of science writing in all different forms because it's a big world out there. We can kind of get at these topics in different ways. Actually, one of my uh, favorite books is a graphic novel take on the story of Pierre and Marie Curie, who uh, discovered radioactivity by Lauren Redness. And it's like a really kind of interesting graphic approach to their lives, you know? So it's like science writing can take a lot of different forms. And then science journalism is sort of a, a subset of that, where it's more traditional journalism with interviewing sources and, you know, sort of a, an attempt at objectivity, hopefully, um, a balanced view of that kind of thing.
0: The Curie book sounds amazing. I'll find that and put a link to it on my website. So, <sighs> So for a science writer, I mean, what are the foundational things that need to be in place to be good at this? It seems to me the task is to take fairly complicated content and present it clearly and accurately, right, for the layperson. That's not a small task.
1: It's not a small task. It's definitely a muscle that needs to be worked. I mean, it's something, you know, I teach in my program and my fellow faculty teach a lot about how to take a a difficult science topic and break it down. Maybe take one aspect of that topic, not try to get your arms around an entire topic. Maybe one approach to make it more understandable is to, let's say, you know, climate change or cancer or some major science topic, figure out how it connects to your life. And that maybe is one way to get at it. Like if you're going to write about it, maybe if you have a history of breast cancer in your family or something like that, maybe that's how you approach writing about cancers from a place of personal experience it's it's difficult to get your arms around all that but um, it's an essential skill to be able to you know read what scientists are doing and then translate it. One of the things I try to teach in some of my classes is metaphor and simile like if you are taking a science concept, what is some everyday function like that you can relate that to? one of my students recently was writing a piece about um, heart valves and she talked about floodgates and dams, you know, as a way to kind of correlate the function so that it could be more understandable to a lay person. So that's some of the techniques you might use to make things understandable.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, and that, uh, it makes sense the fit then with your interest in writing in the intersection of people in place, right? Because you can bring that in And I can absolutely, as a reader, recognize the places where writers have done that. And it makes it, it's a welcome mat, right? It makes it easier for me as a reader to enter into the story. It also seems to me that, you know, I've done a couple of shows now on news literacy um, and kind of the importance of identifying credible sources. It occurs to me that in your work, That's especially true as well, because there's bad science out there. There's pseudo science out there. And you need to be able to distinguish the difference yourselves and, and for the rest of us.
1: It's so true. I think journalists of all kinds and science journalists, especially, you know, we have this kind of strange place that we operate from, which is we obviously need to trust our sources and develop rapport with our sources so that they talk to us. But at the same time, we kind of have to maintain a little distance and some skepticism, some healthy skepticism. I think it's essential for science journalists, science writers to always be kind of questioning the information that they're getting. Think about what their or our, I should say, knee jerk reaction is to a story. If we, you know, it's kind of that that inherent bias that we all carry with us because of our lived experiences. We have a knee jerk way of responding to things usually. And it's all too easy for a source to give us some piece of information. If it happens to fit our worldview, we're going to question it less, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true or accurate or shouldn't be questioned. And so those are the times where we really have to work hard to kind of work against our own inherent bias and find an opposing view, fact check, you know, the piece of information that we're getting and just really make sure we've nailed it down before we publish it.
0: Uh, Very interesting. So are there, techniques for interviewing scientists that are different than what you might use elsewhere? Or is it sort of ever so much more so?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sort of, you know, D, all of the above. I mean, obviously writers need to be willing to ask questions and lots of them. And so I often tell students, you know, to come at an interview, say with a scientist or some sort of expert with your set of questions that you might have and you want to make sure you get through all your questions because again, you know, a source that you're inter- interviewing might have an, an agenda and they might want to steer you off your questions for some reason that benefits them or their their storyline. So you want to be able to stick to the questions that you develop ahead of time, but at the same time, you have to be willing to hear what people have to say, meet them where they are, because sometimes those tangents they take you on lead to really interesting places. So sort of asking lots of questions active listening, and then asking more questions and more listening. I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, I always feel that time is, you know, the writer's friend. Give yourself enough time to do as much research as you can. That's difficult because we're all working on deadline. But giving yourself enough time to investigate something, to ask a source a bunch of questions, think about it, and then come back to them later and ask them more. Think about it some more, process all of it. And then begin writing. Um, that's just essential, I think, to getting a story right.
0: It raises sort of an interesting question for me of, you know, this tension between sort of you have your your prepared questions and then there's the stuff you're not really prepared for. Mm-hmm. You're prepared for as as a craftsman, but not necessarily content-wise. So you kind of pivot and go. And it reminds me of a of a quote that I came across when I was when I was preparing for this conversation from Carl Zimmer. Writing for National Geographic is that I was writing about the natural world, but in nature, I discovered strangeness beyond my own imagining. Wow, and right that's great and I thought you must you must encounter that. I mean, there must be places in your work and your reporting where you suddenly hit something that's like, "Wow, this is kind of trippy or this is really complicated, Oh yeah. And in the moment, you have to figure that out. But then you also have to figure it out. Like inevitably, there must be more to it, right? So what's that process like?
1: Well, first of all, to capture those strange happenings, I mean, I carry a notebook with me everywhere I go. I really do. If I'm just going out for a hike, I carry a notebook with me. Because I don't trust my brain, and with every passing year, I trust it less. You know, um, just have filled just volumes and volumes of notebooks with things that I may never follow up on. So I can try to capture those things I notice in the moment, and it's kind of like you let things percolate, or you know, let let things steep like a cup of tea, and and then the things that really stick with you, um, I tend to follow up and say, you know, what was that all about? Or, you know, I might've been hiking in Shenandoah and seeing a certain kind of fungus or something and been like, Oh, that's just beautiful. What is it? I might try to sketch it in my notebook and figure out what it is. And that might lead to a whole story about how this fungus is, you know, maybe threatened by climate change or something, you know? So um, I think being curious is terrific, but if you don't have a means to um, sort of capture those things, you notice they can uh, flit away faster than we think. So that's one way I try to deal with it.
0: That's a great curiosity practice. You know, I sort of harvest these from my guests and the idea of sort of capturing a curiosity that maybe later takes you somewhere, but, you know, for the moment, it's just sort of incidental that uh, you don't know if it's going to be important, right? Absolutely. You notice it because it caught your attention. Its importance may not be revealed ever or for some long time. That's kind of an interesting paradox of curiosity, I guess.
1: I actually have a writing mantra that is, there's no wasted effort. And that's something I repeat to other writers often too. And I truly believe it because I think everything you write or everything you write down in a notebook or even like pieces that you write that end up being shelved or never get published, you don't know in the writing what its long-term value is going to be. So I sort of have faith that what I write, has value to me even if it's not always obvious or even if it's never obvious like maybe it's just working that muscle of writing and recording um believe me over my years i have so many pieces i've tried to get published that have gone nowhere but sort of on its face but i i sort of trust that there was something valuable in the process of writing and researching that topic even if it didn't get published or didn't come out in the world the way i thought it might
0: that's probably great advice for your students too, to hear that, right?
1: I, I hope so. I, I say it to them a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, nice. So how about your readers? What? How do you, what do you count on in terms of your readers curiosity when you're doing science writing, science journalism?
1: That's a great question. You know, um, I think in our divided times, we hear a lot about sort of, you know, low information readers or there's this sense that because there's so much information out there and social media, there's a shallowness to readers these days and our attention spans are short and all of that might be true to some extent. But the way I look at that is that people really are curious, you know, they're curious. They just have to figure out how to wade through all the volumes of information they get. And I think even those that are prone to be drawn in by say, um, sort of science denials and things that science writers are always trying to kind of fight against, like climate change deniers and conspiracy theories about different aspects of science. I'm thinking of the long now debunked link between vaccines and autism, you know, those things really caught hold with readers. But it wasn't because those readers, you know, lacked intelligence or lacked curiosity. They did. They were looking for answers. And I think sort of starting by respecting that people out there really want information, respecting that they might have lived experiences or cultural reasons why they're inclined or disinclined to listen, to understand this or that, sort of understanding that, having empathy for that is a good place to start as, as a science writer. I also say a lot even for all writers, you know, that we shouldn't think of people as good or bad guys. You know, I think that's kind of a a technique from fiction and and fairy tales and movies that there are good guys and bad guys. There are the heroes and the villains, but no villain really thinks of themselves as a villain. You know, they just have their worldview and it's different from the hero's worldview. And so I think the more we can understand that our readers come to us from all different walks of life, and to try and respect that, and then kind of use that as a way to create some common ground, the the better we'll all be in the end.
0: That raises a really interesting question about, you know, as we were talking earlier about kind of grounding things in the personal, the political, the economic, the, the kind of social context, that it's important then... For those examples and the journalists who are drawing on those examples to come from a pretty diverse series of life experiences and backgrounds as well, are there is there an effort in the field to diversify the voices? Is that a thing? I think there is
1: an effort, and it's mm-hmm. a recognition that's happening across the country in all aspects of writing. I know the National Association of Science Writers has really raised diversity as something, as a goal for that association and its members. I'll tell you what, a class that I'm teaching this fall for Johns Hopkins and that I've taught several times is a class called Prize Winners. And I love teaching this course because it's a course in which our students um, read excerpts from prize-winning science writing. And we run the whole gamut of different kinds of writing. We I sometimes even include fiction uh, uh, last year, I included *The Overstory* by Richard Powers, which is a novel about trees, and it was beautiful. But in preparing readings for that prize-winning course, it's difficult to find prize-winning science writing by people of color because the gatekeepers of the world tend to have, you know, a more monolithic view. There's, you know, a people of color are underrepresented on those juries. You know all different kinds of prize-winning juries, and so we're just not seeing really great science writing be that's by people of color, people by underrepresented groups, LGBTQ community, and others. We don't see that elevated and given that third-party stamp of approval because you know the, the sort of view of science as thing has been sort of dictated by a few um, for a long, mm-hmm. long time. But I do think that's changing. I think the national conversations we're having right now about intersectionality and race and things like that are really helping all areas of writing, but especially in science writing. So I'm glad to see that. And it's definitely something that is being discussed right now.
0: I'm glad to hear it's a topic of discussion. Um, you know, I will confess, a little geek confession here, that one of my favorite gifts is the best science writing of, you know, 2020, 2019, whatever of the year, these collections of great science writing. I don't know that they're award-winning, but somebody decided that they were good writing. And and part of what I like about them is that they expose me to topics I might not otherwise have casually picked up. Like maybe it's a topic that I'm not all that interested in, right. um, or I don't think I'm interested in, but but because I have this collection in front of me, I will read it. And invariably, it's fascinating, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, those are fantastic anth- anthologies. I've taught out of those anthologies before for the same reasons. I do think the guest authors that they use as sort of guest editors for those anthologies really have worked to make those collections diverse in terms of the authors and in terms of the topics. You know, the publications that are represented, they're fantastic anthologies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now it's a great way to... Great way to kind of enter into it. If you don't think of yourself as science curious, you know, go to the places where people who do work in the space say these are the best of the folks. That's a, g- a great place to start, right? Because it's like, wow, this is Absolutely. good stuff. This get hooked. So do you buy this research on science curiosity having a a correlation to being less susceptible to? kind of confirmation bias and the and the echo chamber does that resonate
1: it does resonate with me i think that's absolutely true well science writing is all about figuring out who we are as people and what this world is all about and what this universe is all about and i feel like the more that you understand yourself as kind of part of the human condition the more that you have empathy for others and understanding of others and see yourself more as A citizen of your country or a citizen of the world, it creates this more of this interconnection between human beings, which I think is really essential uh, part of civic life, you know? So I I absolutely buy that premise for sure.
0: Right. Well, that's a great segue for me in terms of talking about finding connections and intersections. Um, We're almost out of time, but there was always time for my big jar of wannabe analogies. Are you ready for this?
1: (laughs) I don't know.
0: We'll try it. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. I have my jar here. I'm going to take three slips out. One for you, one for me, one for our audience. Um, and so, uh, yours is lipstick. How is curiosity like lipstick? And mine is jelly beans. How is curiosity like jelly beans? So would you like to go first or do you want me to give it a go? Um, why don't you go first? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Jelly beans. How is curiosity like jelly beans? Um, Well, uh, jelly beans, particularly now in the, you know, every imaginable flavor. Thank you, Harry Potter. uh, You know, you sort of, you pick one up and you don't really necessarily know what you're going to get. And I think curiosity is sort of to your point about no, effort is wasted in the writing and the curiosity of like, this might be an interesting topic, like no jelly bean is wasted. (laughs) So no matter the flavor, um, there's a, there's kind of an adventure behind it. And I think curiosity is the same thing that it's all sorts of different flavors. And some of them you enjoy more than others, but, but you sort of have to, you sort of have to pop it in and, and pursue it. I guess that's how I think of jelly beans, like curiosity. How about lipstick? How is curiosity like lipstick?
1: Uh, first of all, I love your answer because no jelly bean would ever be wasted in my house. That's for sure. <laughs> so, but um, well, I was thinking about this. I think the way that curiosity is like lipstick is that you don't have to be born with innate curiosity to become curious. Lipstick is something you put on and you get to pick the the color of lipstick you wanna put on and you can take it off and try on a different color the next day. And I get a lot of students that sometimes feel like I don't know where to get a story idea from. So they haven't sort of trained their curiosity muscle and it is something that can be developed. I say, well then go out in the woods maybe for half an hour with your notebook and sit still and see what happens there are ways you can um, train your curiosity just by exposing yourself to different experiences to different people and that kind of will perk up hopefully your curiosity muscles there's a line in the cheryl strayed book wild that i love which is to put yourself in the way of beauty put yourself in the way of beauty and i think about you know, curiosity and about the world. Put yourself in the way of interesting things. You know, beauty or difficulty or love or hate or science, whatever it might be. But if you put yourself there and participate, um, you're building up your curio- curiosity muscle, and then the next day you can try something else.
0: I love it. You know, choose to be curious. Choose your lipstick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: that's great and audience wonderful that was wonderful uh audience yours is knapsack how is curiosity like a knapsack let me know facebook twitter hashtag analogy well kim this has been great your class must be wonderful and thank you for sharing some of your inside tips with us today
1: thank you so much this was so fun
0: You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can find all my previous shows on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at Choose to becuriouscom I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at Choose number two, letter B, Curious. Don't forget to send us your knapsack analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Kim O'Connell. Links to her terrific work and that study from Dan Kahan on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Waterborne by Algie Fields via Blue Dot Sessions. So go read some science. It's good for all of us. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then... Choose to be curious. for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova Househunter. Funding for Choose to be Curious is provided in part by Concentric Private Wealth, where changemakers develop clarity for today and confidence for tomorrow by centering on what matters most, which involves more than just money. More information at www.concentricpw.com. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.